This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary in progress for the week of July 23rd, 2016. Is there ever a way to recover history? If emotion is the only truthful gauge of any events, then it may be important how one feels about a series of facts. You have to be able to keep your heart open in order to feel what is true. It's a tool. And when things become too upsetting or too unsettling, you must look to beauty for replenishment. Can it be that beauty is also that which creates a resonance among facts, that which reveals what is truth. I think this might be possible. I wanted to talk about betrayal tonight, but before I do, I want to define what I mean by betrayal in this context. I am referring to when you lie or become a false witness against someone else. When you take an action or omit facts that you know will hurt someone else because you feel you must or someone you love will be harmed or you will lose something you care deeply about or you might do it because you will gain position or power. You feel you didn't care about the person you betrayed anyway, or maybe you cared too much. In any event, you felt the risk was worth the reward. Or it could be that you did so out of intense fear. For the betrayed, all betrayals you suffer can be seen as gifts as the pain that they create in the moment is a small price to pay for what their reversal provides later. One who betrays a loved one suffers in their heart. They lose a part of feeling. They lose a valuable tool. They feel less, so are less able to perceive and fully experience what is beautiful in life. They also are less able to perceive the authenticity of future betrayals, or they might see betrayals where there are none. They could also anticipate a betrayal where one was not initially going to occur, but the anticipation encourages the betrayer to complete the betrayal. At some point, they may decide to reverse their betrayal. This involves apologizing to the one betrayed and telling the truth and abandoning the false truth that was used in the betrayal. It may also involve lending assistance to the betrayed and or 
honoring them somehow. Once this reversal is completed, the connection between the betrayed and the betrayer is very strong. It's like an iron chain. It's unbreakable. For a betrayal reversed will never be able to be altered. And the betrayer's heart is restored to its full capacity. Freedom now flows to the betrayer. They feel good. They thrive. They are full of life and clarity. This is a much better outcome for all than vengeance after you have been betrayed. Vengeance only amplifies fear, anger, and violence. It ensures the continuation of betrayal for generations to come. It alters your DNA. It only serves those with great wealth and power who are also weak and corrupt. Because it keeps the betrayed so busy, they lose their ability to imagine or create. They become slaves to the betrayal cycle and are easily manipulated. Being forced into a betrayal in order to save something or someone you love is never worth the price. But if it happens, it can always be reversed. It takes very little effort, but it does take much courage. If you've been betrayed, don't focus on the loss. That only causes further betrayals to come into your life. Instead, focus on what you imagine to be beautiful in your life or in your future. Imagine it until you can feel it and touch it. Live it in your imagination every single day. Human beings are the only creatures who have the ability to imagine so vividly, or so we think. <laughs> they are creative. The more you imagine what can be, the more you will understand how to take useful steps to make it happen. You have to exercise your imagination or you will lose the ability to be creative. It takes practice like anything else. And now I want to move back into Carl's history. I received Carl's information sheet. Um, this is a form that traveled with him when he entered or was moved to different prisons. I reread it this morning and I'll post it on the webpage for this podcast so you can take a look at it. Under crimes, it does not mention the sniper crimes. It does not mention murder or assault from the sniper shootings. It only mentions the rape crimes and illegal possession of a firearm by a felon for which he was initially held. 
it does list his sentence as life hyphen life, which is two life sentences. Carl received four life sentences, two for the alleged sniper crimes, according to the newspapers. This omission of the sniper crime on not just one, but two information sheets is interesting. Why was it omitted? Is it a clerical error? If it occurred once, I would say this is likely, but it occurs twice on two different forms. I was sent these forms by someone who told me other information as well. The forms had been destroyed in the Washington State Archives, allegedly, yet these copies were found by an employee somewhere else. Was Harp's trial a false trial, a mock trial, something only made to look like a trial for the sniper crimes? I don't know. I also had another thought. Carl's second wife was Jamie Harloff. She and Carl were married in Nevada in February 1973. They both listed their place of residence as Virginia. Jamie and Carl traveled together in March 1973 to the Seattle area. In June, Carl was arrested for the rape charges. From reviewing the evidence, it is not very likely that he was the rapist. His tattoos didn't match their descriptions, nor did his build. But he was held in jail until he was charged with the sniper crimes on the last day of August in 1973. The trials occurred back to back. It's interesting to think about Jamie. She was small and 19 when they married. Allegedly from the police documents, she had helped rob a bank by phone in Seattle and fled a court order to remain in the state to testify during Carl's sniper case because allegedly she had been the one to accuse him of the crime. She'd been married before to uh, Richard Harloff in California. And the man she fled with, who I'm just going to refer to as Kay. Richard Harloff holds a high position related to intelligence and government. Kay, the other man, worked at Lockheed Martin. It seems unlikely a young woman with mental problems who hangs out with criminals and drug addicts, according to police, would have two significant others with highly respected positions in government. And both she and Carl were in Virginia at the time when they decided to marry and move to Seattle just weeks before the sniper shooting. Prior to meeting Jamie, 
Carl had been involved in fighting in Vietnam and Guatemala, as I said before. He had done this work between the years 1966 and 1969, mostly while he was allegedly on parole from a youth correctional facility in California. This is called mercenary fighting. I call it dark pool fighting because it's like the dark pool events in our financial system and it's related to finance. I confirmed others also did this kind of fighting after being in California youth correctional facilities in the same, at the same time and in the same area as Carl. When Carl did this fighting, he had not yet applied for a social security card. He did not apply and receive one until he was older. If you are in the military or work for any legitimate employer in the U.S., you have to have a social security number. Carl did some of this work when he did not. In 1969, after this fighting, Carl was released completely from the California Youth Authority, but not before. While he was fighting, he was defined as a parolee associated with the California Youth Authority. Did Carl come willingly to Seattle with Jamie for a reason? What was that reason? What were they doing in Virginia when they met? Why would a young woman who had been married to a military employee, who later had a high-level position, be interested in Carl Harp? Why was she allowed to flee from a court order even when held in jail in Chicago? Why did she flee to Chicago with a man who later worked at Lockheed Martin? Why was she never charged with a crime for allegedly attempting to rob a bank by phone? And why was Carl never charged if she said he did it with her? Did Carl agree to accept the sniper charges at first for some unknown reason while he sat in jail for the rape charges, but later changed his mind after seeing that he was given a sentence designed to keep him in prison for the rest of his life, four life sentences, 95 years. Why was he raped in prison so harshly by guards in 1980? a year before he was murdered. Why did a doctor who examined him for a trial in 1980 describe the wounds, but his autopsy report a year later said there were no wounds? Why was his mustache, which he always had after a certain period of his life, shaved off during his murder? Was the razor in the bag found in his cell used to shave his mustache off? Why did the autopsy photos not include photos of his slashed 
wrists. Yet it was said he slashed his wrists with the razor blades from the bag. Why did the medical doctor who did his initial interview in jail with him while being held for rape charges described to me in 2015 that Carl was raped with a metal pipe until he died. Was this true? And if true or not, what message did it send by describing it to me? Why would this doctor say it so gleefully as he described it? I understand these are more questions than answers, but I am offering them because sometimes questions help connect the dots for others. It's difficult to form good questions when the facts are so twisted. And one thing I can see clearly is that Carl's history is very muddied and it may always be so. His history is peppered with betrayals from the time he was 11 until his death at the age of 32. Did he also unwittingly betray himself? I think this possible. But who is innocent of such a betrayal? I would suggest that no one who has lived a complicated life. I don't intend to ever be able to answer these questions. I think it enough to create the map and to show the map with as much beauty as possible because beauty is medicine in a world filled with suffering. And that's all I've got for tonight. Good night.